You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. There were really three events, three main events that led up to us scheduling this service. Uh, The first is that a year ago, over a year ago, we had a Break the Chains event and we focused on overdose. And the guests, all the guests that came to be with us that day, we sent out a, a survey to them asking them, what do you think is another topic that is threatening the lives of people in our community? And overwhelming, the number one response to that survey was suicide. The next thing that happened was um, we do growth track on a regular basis, and growth track gives people the opportunity to kind of share where uh, they're gifted, where what the, what their strengths are, and also a little bit of their experiences. And when Mandy went through a growth track, she came to me and shared with me on her on her little response card. And this is not typical, but Mandy just felt led to do it. She wrote down. She said, "I've lost two people that I love to suicide, and I feel like God wants me to share my story." And so that just went along with what God was already doing in my heart. And then the third thing that happened was, um, some of you may have heard of, of this, Pastor Andrew Stockland, and we're going to show you a picture of his family. He's a pastor in California, and last year, last fall, he took a four-month sabbatical because he was struggling with this emotional well-being, he was struggling, his church had gone through this period of, of just fast expansion and growth, and he came back from that four-month sabbatical, and he opened up and shared with his church all of these struggles that he was having, how difficult it had been. And two weeks after that message, he took his own life. And when that happened, um, man, it just, it just really struck home for me. Because I imagine that maybe I was where some of you are, where where you hear about someone taking their own life and it just doesn't make any sense to you. You can't can't even put yourself in the vein or the, the avenue that someone would be in to make that decision. But when I looked at Pastor Drew Stockland and his family, what I saw was that this guy had most of the things that I thought of would bring happiness into a pastor's life. This is somebody that I could relate to. I mean, he's, he's leading a church that is growing. He's an excellent communicator. That's something that I aspire to be. His church was making a, a difference in the community. That's something that we are desperately trying to do here for our friends and neighbors and children. He has a beautiful family. Um, just seemed like everything was going well for him. In that message, he talks about how failure might kill you, but success will often bury you alive. And that's where he found himself. And that message that he, he delivered when he came back was the, to kick off a series called Hot Mess that they did at their church. And this is what he said. He said, a hot mess is an attractive disaster. It's when we do a really good job of making the outside look hot, but the inside is an absolute mess. That's where he was at. Everything was going well. Everything looked perfect on paper. His church was doing well. His family was doing well. But on the inside, he was crumbling. So much so that even when he shared openly with his congregation what it was that he was going through, he still found himself susceptible to these thoughts. And he ultimately made the decision to take his life. 
Not long after that happened, I was reading the book, Didn't See It Coming, by Carrie Newhoff, which was the inspiration for our sermon series that we just wrapped up a few weeks ago. And in that, Carrie Newhoff, talking about his experience with burnout, said that there was a season when things were at their worst, that driving to work, that he entertained the thought of just driving his car into the bridge pylon and ending it all. And here are two guys that they're leading churches that are growing, they're excellent communicators, they're blessed with so many things that, 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 that I am thankful for in my own life, and I look at them and I say, if it could happen to them, if they could be at a place where they entertain those thoughts, or they act on those thoughts. So for me, over the last several months, I've tried to put into practice some of the habits that Newhoff talks about that he had to discover when he was going through that season. And even Stockland talked about in that sermon when he returned to his congregation. And I'm not putting those into practice in my life because I'm struggling with suicidal thoughts or that that's something that I'm entertaining. I'm putting them into practice because I don't want to get to that point. And it may be that you're here today and this is something that seems very unfamiliar or even foreign to you. And I want you to know that if that's where you're at, that there's still application for you. That there is still some, some health to be found here. There's some truth and some wisdom for you to apply here. Because whether or not this is something that you're currently wrestling with or something that your family has experienced, all of us would do well to view these stories and the stories of people that we know and people that, that we are familiar with and take caution. And what's been just absolutely mind-blowing to me is that over the past three weeks, since we announced that we were doing this service, how many messages I have received from people saying, one, Pastor Dan, this is something that I struggled with. This is something that I attempted. Or two, Pastor Dan, that's what I lost my father to. I lost my cousin to this. And there is this silent killer that is all around us lurking, and because we don't talk about it, we give it more strength. And so my hope is that today, just by speaking about this topic and and opening the conversation and shedding some light on this, that we'll weaken it. And that everybody who's here and hears my message, everybody who views this online or sees Mandy's testimony, that it'll weaken that lie that Satan wants to tell us. Say, what do you mean that lie that Satan wants to tell us? Well, I want you to know that I'm no psychologist, I'm not a counselor, I'm not a therapist. And so I'm not going to talk to you like a therapist today, because I'm not one. I'm not going to talk to you like a counselor today, I'm not one. I'm a pastor, and so I'm going to talk to you like a pastor would talk to you. And in my reading over the last few months on this, what I've seen is there's definitely these chemical and emotional factors that are at play. And I'm not an expert on any of that. And I'm not going to speak to those, not because I want to downplay those. If, if you are struggling with depression or anxiety or thoughts of suicide, I want you to take advantage of every opportunity you have to find emotional well-being. But because those are my areas of expertise, I'm not going to talk about them. What I have noticed, though, is that it seems that people who struggle with this this topic of suicide, that it's like their brain and their emotions, their, their emotional well-being turns against them. And they don't have the wherewithal to make the right choices. It's like their mind and nervous system turns on them and pushes them towards destruction. 
for us if we've never been in that situation. It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't seem rational. We can't reason in our minds why anyone would do this. But the very mind that we use to say that doesn't make sense, what if that very mind, that central processing center in our brains, what if it turned against us and made us think differently? Think things that didn't make sense. And I'm sure that there are some of you here and you've lost someone that you love to suicide and you deal with feelings of anger at that person. Why would they do this to us? I don't want to discount your anger at all. If I was in your shoes, I'm sure that I would feel the exact same thing. But I want you to know that that what, what I've looked at is that their mind has been poisoned or corrupted against them. How many of you have ever heard the term halt and catch fire? It's a computer programming term. All right. You're going to learn a little computer programming, all right? In the early days of computing, halt and catch fire was a term referred to computer codes that were dangerous to the computer. In those early days of processing and programming, it was actually possible to enter commands that would cause the computer to self-destruct. That kind of sounds cool, right? Well, because of that, they didn't want to call the commands what they actually were, so they used this euphemism, halt and catch fire, for any command that might bring that about. There was one specific computer that was an eight um, gigabyte computer. If you know computers that, I mean, that's like, not an eight gigabyte, I'm sorry, an eight bit computer. Um, And it was the Motorola 6800. And in 1974, it had a flaw that if you knew there were two different commands, if you knew those commands and you entered them in, it would cause the CPU to constantly increase its demands on the processing unit until it absolutely burned out or even just got so hot that it sparked. It would halt and catch fire. What's happening here is the central processing unit turns against the machinery, turns against the computer, and causes it to burn down. And it seems that there is some brokenness in us, in our nervous system, in our minds, that makes it possible for there to be a halt and catch fire command that fires in us and causes us to turn against our own existence. And if you're there, I'd encourage you to see a doctor, to see a therapist, a counselor. They can deal with those hardware issues. But I want to talk about the software issue. Because in that scenario, the halt and catch fire, that was a programming issue in the hardware and programming of that computer. But someone had to enter the command that would cause that computer to melt down. And I believe that while we have this brokenness that is uh, in us, that there is someone who utters that command to bring us to halt and catch fire, to burn our very existence down, to turn us against ourselves. And the reason I speak of this is because in, in my world, there is, there's not a, a journal of medicine, there's not peer-reviewed research, rather there's the Word of God. And I find this to be the sufficient source of truth and wisdom in my life. And what I find in the Scripture is there are seven people who committed suicide. And of those seven people that committed suicide in Scripture, four of them we don't really know a lot about. We just know that they were in the midst of a battle and something happened, and so they were injured and they wanted to take their life. But there are three characters that we know a lot about. We know their backstories. They're the kind of main characters of Scripture that we know everything that led up to those moments. And here's what we know about all three of them. Is that all three of them were in the midst of a great spiritual battle. Samson, Saul, and Judas all took their own lives. 
And all of them were in the midst of a deep spiritual battle. In every one of them, in every one of their stories, there is a place where Scripture tells us that the Spirit of God was withdrawn from them or the Spirit of the evil one was placed upon them. Now, I'm not saying that all three of these characters, that they were far from God or that they did not know God. In fact, what we have evidence is to the, the exact opposite. In fact, Samson, in his final moments, he asked God for the strength to bring this house of the enemy down. And in that, he kills himself, but also takes out more of the enemy than he ever did in his life. And so, Scripture doesn't give us this idea that... that Suicide is something that only happens in the result of a loss of spiritual battle, but rather what it points to is that suicide happens in the course of great spiritual warfare. A great spiritual battle. Now, years ago, everything was a spiritual problem. If you coughed, you probably had a demon. If you had twins, you're probably a witch. I mean, back in the day, they would, when someone was really sick, they would cut their veins. They would cut their veins so they could let the demons out. And when they died, because they literally bled them to death, they'd be like, he had more demons than we thought. (laughs) Now, I'm glad that we have moved away from that. I'm glad that that's no longer kind of the go-to reaction. I'm thankful that when I take my kids to the doctor, that the pediatrician is like, they're a demon. I'm like, I know, they are. It's a virus, and we know that it's germs, and there's antibiotics that have been given. I'm glad we've made some advancements, but I'm afraid that we've gone so far to the opposite end of the spectrum that we think that everything is molecular, everything is biological, everything is chemical, and that everything can be explained away by a blood test and under a microscope. Because while we were too far on that end of the spectrum, I think that maybe we're too far this way. And I would tell you that whatever problem you're currently facing is more spiritual than you recognize. And that doesn't just relate to your emotional well-being, but it also relates to your marriage and your finances, your family. Whatever problem you're currently facing is more spiritual than you realize. And Jesus speaks to this in a passage in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, Jesus says, The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. And Jesus is actually speaking in the context that he is like a shepherd and he keeps watch over the sheep and the thief is the one who comes in to steal the sheep or to kill them or destroy. And can I just tell you that that's exactly what Satan wants to do? He wants to come in to steal, kill, or destroy. That he will steal your joy, he will steal your happiness, he'll steal the harmony from your home. If he can, he will kill you. There's actually a portion of Scripture that tells us that God had a meeting with Satan about this guy named Job. And Satan wants to destroy Job, and God has to say, don't kill him. Don't you dare kill him. Why? Because that's what Satan wants to do. He wants to kill us. He wants to ruin us. Scripture speaks about Satan in several different places. It says in 1 Peter 5.8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, seeks about like a roaring lion, seeing who he can devour. He's always looking for someone to destroy that's what he wants to do. Ephesians 4.27 tells us that we should give no opportunity or no place. Don't let him get close because he wants to do all of this damage in your life. Later, he would tell us in 6.11, put on the whole armor of God. Be ready for battle. Why? Because 6.12 tells us that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. Now, that's what we think. We think it's a flesh and blood problem. We think that it's a physical problem and that that does come into play. But what he says is we are wrestling against the cosmic power of spiritual forces in the air. What he's telling us 
is that our problem is more spiritual than we realize. And Satan is always looking for an opportunity to do destruction. You know what I think of when I think of Satan? I think of Batman. Not that Batman is Satan, but there is this moment in the dark night where Batman just cannot understand the motivation that drives the Joker to do the things that he does. And his butler says to him, some men just want to watch the world burn. And that's where Satan's at. He just wants to do damage. Now I'm afraid that we think that Satan is this guy that wants to get us to do the wrong thing so that he gets us to do the wrong thing. That he takes joy in us breaking the rules. But the truth is that he doesn't want us to just do the wrong thing. He doesn't just want us to break the rules. He wants us to do the wrong thing so that he can use that to lure us farther and farther from God to a place where we are destroyed. We think that Satan is this guy just throwing candy out on the playground. When really what he is, is he's that creepy dude with a van around the corner. He wants to lure you there so he can take you captive and ruin you. That's what he wants. We have our, uh, in our minds this idea that is commonly portrayed in popular culture that spiritual warfare is a, a demon on one shoulder and an angel on the other, right? And the angel's saying, no, don't do it. And Satan's saying, yeah, do it. That's not what it is at all. Eric, can I, can I borrow you real quick? Pastor Eric's going to be our visual demonstration. The truth is that you don't have an angel on this shoulder and a devil on this shoulder. The truth is that the devil plays both roles. That he is both on this shoulder and this shoulder. Over here he says, go ahead and do it. It's not that big a deal. Nobody's going to know. You'll never get caught in. As soon as we commit the sin, he comes over and goes, I cannot believe you did that. You are disgusting. If people find out if they know what you did, we better hide that. Stuff it way down. Don't talk about it. Then he'd come over on this day. He said, because you're hurting, you really need something that's going to help you feel better. Let's take a little bit of this. Let's get a hit of that. And as soon as you do, he comes over and he says, now you're an addict. You're gross. You're never going to amount to anything. And he constantly bounces back and forth, telling you to do something. And as soon as you do it, he becomes the prosecuting attorney. He's your defense lawyer and the prosecuting attorney. He convinces you that it's not that big of a deal. Then he tells you how awful you are. Thanks, man. That was great. Eric did a great job, didn't he? Give him a hand. You see, Satan poses both as the defense lawyer and the prosecuting attorney. And I want you to notice that I use the word poses because he doesn't have the right to do either. We shouldn't listen to his advice. And even when we do, we shouldn't listen to his judgment because he has no authority to tell us that we've done wrong. He has no authority. God doesn't care what he has to say. But what he does is he constantly uses this back and forth to get us to this place where we are convinced that our lives are miserable and that we would be better off being destroyed, that everyone around us would be better off if we weren't around. That we'd be better off ending our life before people figure out or find out what's really going on. And when you hear those voices, I want you to know that that is the voice of evil. That no matter what shoulder it's sitting on, That is the voice of evil, working you towards destruction. Years ago, I heard a young man share his testimony. When he was a high school student, he got involved in pornography. He stood up at camp and he shared this testimony that because of his pornography, he felt so disgusting and he was afraid that everyone was going to find out. He would come home, get home before his parents would get home, and Satan would start that banter of, hey, you you ought to partake participate in that. As soon as he would, he would start to feel guilty and disgusting and ashamed. 
And then Satan would tell him, you're worthless. Your parents, if they really knew who you were, they'd be so disgusted. They wouldn't nothing to do with you. They would disown you. Your friends, if they ever figure out what's going on, if they see who you really are, they won't be your friends anymore. And that escalated constantly until finally Satan entered the command for halt and catch fire. And he says to that young man, he says, you know where your dad's revolver is. When you get home, instead of getting on the computer, go to his nightstand. That young man shared the testimony that that he went to his father's nightstand. He had written a note for his parents. He went to the nightstand. He pulled the revolver out. And he put the gun to his head. And in that moment, in a moment of grace, a picture of his family there on the nightstand where he had just gotten the revolver, he heard just the faintest whisper of a voice saying, You're loved. You're loved. That is the voice of God. That is the voice of the shepherd. You see, the good shepherd will always lead you towards life. That's where he'll lead you. He will not lead you toward destruction. That's what Jesus is talking about here in John chapter 10. He says, I am the good shepherd, and I will always lead my people into health. I will always lead my people into goodness. He says, those that follow me will always find pasture. He's a good shepherd that will take us to a place that is healthy and beneficial and loving and welcoming. And it doesn't matter what kind of sheep we've been. Jesus tells the story about one sheep who wanders away. And Jesus leaves the 99 in the sheepfold to go look for that one lost lamb. And some of you have been that one lost lamb. You're the troublemaker. You're the black sheep in your family. You're the one that when everybody's where they're supposed to be, you're not there yet. And you're texting, I'll be there in five minutes. But you're not even going to show up, are you? And Jesus comes looking for you. Because he's the good shepherd. And he brings the sheep home and cares for that lamb. Jesus says here in this passage, not only that he's the good shepherd, but he says, I am the door. Do you see that in John chapter 10 and verse 9? I am the door. You know what he's saying? Back in this time when shepherds would have to keep their sheep, when they would get them into a fold, get them into a barn, they would often get them all to lay down and then they would sleep in the doorway. Because if you're sleeping in the doorway, if a sheep wants to get out, he's got to walk over your sleeping body. And shepherds must not have been parents. Because if you're a parent, you get used to just sleeping over people walking over you. (laughs) He sleeps in the doorway, the sheep can't get out. And the predator can't get in. He says, I am the door. So he's talking about that shepherd who sleeps at the door, but he's also pointing out to the fact that he's the one that makes it possible for us to get in. Because in John 14, Jesus would actually say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, I am the way. I'm that doorway. I'm the way that you can enter in to have that life. And friend, whatever emotional physical, biological feelings that you might be having, whatever it is that you're currently facing, Jesus came so that you could have life. That's the reason that He came. He came because we're broken. He came because there's this this thing in us that wants to lead toward our own destruction. And maybe you're here and you say, I can't really relate with those people you were talking about earlier because I'm not a pastor. I can't really relate with those people that that Manny was talking about because I I didn't really know them. But here's something that is common in all of us. Every one of us is broken and everyone is in need of Jesus' presence in our lives. And this path of destruction is in all of us. 
And so if you're here today, I just want you to hear that Jesus came that you might have life so that he could lead you in the way of life. If you're here today and you've lost someone that you care about to this path of destruction, maybe that path of destruction ended in suicide. Maybe it ended in overdose. The truth is that Satan doesn't care. As long as it ends in destruction, he's happy. Because he wants to seek someone out that he can devour. And you've lost someone that has ended their life in a path of destruction. I want you to know that Jesus came so that they could have life. It's the reason that he came. That, that he, he is, it's not that he's unconcerned or that he didn't care. It's not that he said, you know what? They just have to do what they do. It wasn't his attitude. It wasn't his spirit at all. He came and he gave everything, even his own life so that we might have life. Because while the Satan wants to do this destruction, he wants to do this evil work of taking us down this path towards death, Jesus came so that we could have life. And he wants to lead us into the ways of life. You know what? I wish that this morning, that in the space of 20 minutes, that I could deliver a talk that would end suicide, end the plague of suicide. <coughs> But that's not within my power. But is, what is within my power is to open the conversation and to let you know that Jesus came so that we might all have life and life abundant. And for the person here that you have lost someone that you care about deeply, I want you to hear what Jesus said in John 10.10. 10, I've come that they might have life and life abundant. A couple of months after Andrew Stockland took his life, his wife and his mother stood on the stage of their church and they said, this is not the life that we want. They said that we have, we have figured out that it's in the hard times that you figure out who you really are. And it's also in the hard times that you see who God really is. And I want you to know that in the midst of this heartbreak that you might be in right now, in the midst of these, these painful feelings, the talking about this is dredged up. I want you to know that in the midst of this, that you can know who God really is. And you can have His hope and His abundant life, even in the midst of this mess, this hot mess. Would you bow your heads with me?